Chapter Sixteen of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen: The Court. We must once more, following the course of human nature as it is at all times, but more especially as it was then, before all the great asperities of the world were smoothed and softened down, and one universal railroad made life an easy and rapid course from one end to another. We must once more, then, following the common course of being, shift the scene and bring before our readers a new part of the great panorama of that day. It was then at the lordly palace of Versailles, in the time of its greatest and its most extraordinary splendour, when the treasures of a world had been ransacked to adorn its halls, and art and genius had been called in to do what riches had been unable to accomplish. While yet every chamber throughout the building flamed with those far-famed groups, cast in solid gold, the designs of which had proceeded from the pencil of Le Brun, and the execution of which had employed a thousand of the most skilful hands in France, while yet marble and porphyry and jasper shone in every apartment, and the rarest works from every quarter of the world were added to the richness of the other decorations, before, in short, the consequences of his own ambition, or his successor's faults and weaknesses, had stripped one splendid ornament from that extraordinary building, which Louis the Fourteenth had erected in the noon of his splendour, it was then that took place the scene which we are about to describe. The Count de Mosseux had scarcely paused even to take needful rest on his way from Poitou to Paris, and he had arrived late at night at the untenanted dwelling of his fathers in the capital. The Counts de Mosseux had ever preferred the country to the town, and though they possessed a large house in the Place Royale, which was then, though it is now no longer, a fashionable part of the city, that house had become, as it were, merely the dwelling-place of some old officers and attendants, who happened to have a lingering fondness for the busy haunts of men which their lord shared not in. The old white-headed porter, as he opened the gate for his young master, stared with wonder and surprise to see him there, and nothing, of course, was found prepared for his reception. But the Count was easily satisfied and easily pleased. Food could always be procured without any difficulty in the great capital of all eating. But repose was what the young Count principally required, and, after having dispatched a messenger to Versailles to ask in due form an audience of the king as early as possible on the following morning, to cast himself on the first bed that could be got ready, and forgot in a few minutes all the cares and sorrows and anxieties which had accompanied him on his way to the capital. The request for an audience was conveyed through the Marquis of Seignolai, with whom the Count himself was well acquainted, and he doubted not that it would be granted immediately, if he had proceeded, as he had every reason to believe he had, the ordinary courier from Poitou, bringing the news of the events which had taken place in that province. The letter of the young secretary, who returned to his application, arrived the next morning, but it was cold and formal, and evidently written under the immediate dictation of the king. It merely notified to the Count that, for the next three days, the time appointed by His Majesty for business would be fully occupied, 
that in the meantime, if the business which brought the Count to Paris were important, he would communicate it to the minister under whose department it came. The note went on to add that if the business were not one requiring immediate dispatch, the young Count would do well to come to Versailles, to signify the place of his abode at the palace, and to wait the monarch's leisure. This was by no means the tone which Louis usually assumed towards one of the most gallant officers in his service, and while the Count at once perceived that the King was offended with him on some account, he felt great difficulty in so shaping his conduct as to meet the exigency of the moment. As the only resource, he determined to see and interest Seigneur Lai to obtain for him a more speedy audience, and he had the greater hopes of doing so inasmuch as that minister was known to be jealous of and inimical to Louvois, one of the great persecutors of the Protestants. While he was pondering over these things and preparing to set out immediately for Versailles, another courier from the court arrived, bearing with him a communication of a very different character, which, upon the whole, surprised the Count even more than the former one had done. It contained a general invitation to all the evening entertainments of the court, specifying not only those to which the great mass of the French nobility were admitted as a matter of course, but the more private and select parties of the king, to which none in general but his own especial friends and favourites were ever invited. This gave Albert of Mousset fresh matter for meditation, but also some hope that the king, whom he believed to be generous and kind-hearted, had remembered the services he and his ancestors had rendered to the state, and had consequently made an effort to overcome any feelings of displeasure which he might have entertained, in consequence of reports from Poitiers. He determined, however, to pursue his plan with regard to Seigneur Lai, believing that it would be facilitated, rather than otherwise, by any change of feeling which had come over the monarch, and he accordingly proceeded to Versailles at once. The Secretary of State was not to be found in his apartments, but one of his attendants informed the Count that, at that hour, he would find him alone in the gardens, and he accordingly proceeded to seek him with all speed. As he passed by the orangery, however, he heard the sound of steps and gay voices speaking, and, in a moment after, stood in the presence of the king himself, who had passed through the orangery, and was now issuing forth into the gardens. Louis was at this time a man of the middle age, above the ordinary height, and finely proportioned in all his limbs. Though he still looked decidedly younger than he really was, and the age of forty was perhaps as much as any one would have assigned him, judging from appearance, yet he had lost all the slightness of the youthful figure. He was robust, and even stout, though by no means corpulent, and the ease and grace with which he moved showed that no power was impaired. His countenance was fine and impressive, though perhaps it might not have afforded to a very scrutinising physiognomist any indication of the highest qualities of the human mind. All the features were good, some remarkably handsome, but in most there was some peculiar defect, some slight want, which took away from the effect of the whole. The expression was placable but commanding, and grave rather than thoughtful, and the impression produced by its aspect was that it was serious, less from natural disposition or intense occupation of mind, 
than from the consciousness that it was a condescension for that countenance to smile. The monarch's carriage, as he walked, also produced an effect somewhat similar on those who saw him for the first time. Every step was dignified, stately, and graceful, but there was something a little theatrical in the whole, joined with, or perhaps expressing, a knowledge that every step was marked and of importance. The king's dress was exceedingly rich and costly, and certainly though bad taste in costume was then at its height, the monarch and the group that came close upon his steps formed as glittering and gay an object as could be seen. Amongst those who followed the king, however, were several ecclesiastics, and to the surprise of the young Count de Mosseuil, one of those on whom his eye first fell was no other than the Abbé Pelisson, in eager but low conversation with the Bishop of Meaux. Louis himself was speaking with a familiar tone, alternately to the Prince de Marciac and to the well-known financier Béchemal, whose exquisite taste in pictures, statues, and other works of art recommended him greatly to the monarch. No sooner did the king's look rest upon the young Count de Mosseuil than his brow became as dark as a thundercloud, and he stopped suddenly in his walk. Scarcely had the Count time to remark that angry expression, however, before it had entirely passed away, and a grave and dignified smile succeeded. It was a common remark at that time that the king was to be judged by those who sought him from his first aspect, and certainly, if that were the test in the present instance, his affection for the Count de Mosseuil was but small. Louis was conscious that he had displayed bad feelings more openly than he usually permitted himself to do, and he now hastened to repair that fault, not by affecting the direct contrary sentiments, as some might have done, but by softening down his tone and demeanour to the degree of dignified disapprobation, which they might naturally be supposed to have reached. "'Monsieur de Mosseuil,' he said, as the young nobleman approached, "'I am glad, yet sorry, to see you. "'There are various reports have reached me from Poitou, "'tending to create a belief that you have been in some degree "'wanting in due respect to my will, "'and I should have been glad that the falsehood of those reports "'had been proved before you again presented yourself. "'Your services, sir, however, are not forgotten, "'and you have on so many occasions shown devotion,' obedience and gallantry which might well set an example to the whole world that i cannot believe there is any truth in what i have heard and am willing unless a painful conviction to the contrary is forced upon me to look upon you till the whole of this matter be fully investigated in the same light as ever the king paused a moment as if for reply and the count de Mosseuil gladly seized the opportunity of saying I came up post, sire, last night from Mosseuil for the purpose of casting myself at your majesty's feet and entreating you to believe that I would never willingly give you the slightest just cause for offence, in word, thought, or deed. I apprehended that some false or distorted statements, either made for the purpose of deceiving your majesty or originating in erroneous impressions, might have reached you concerning my conduct, as I know misapprehensions of my conduct had occurred in Poitiers itself. Such being the case, and various very painful events having taken place, I felt it my duty to beseech Your Majesty to grant me an audience, in order that I might lay before you the pure and simple facts, which I am ready to vouch for 
on the honour of a French gentleman. I am most desirous, especially with regard to the latter events which have taken place, that your majesty should be at once made aware of the facts as they really occurred, lest any misrepresentation should reach your ears, and prepare your mind to take an unfavourable view of acts which were performed in all loyalty, and with the most devoted affection to your majesty's person. The young count spoke with calm and dignified boldness. There was no hesitation, there was no wavering, there was no apprehension either in tone, manner, or words, and there was something in his whole demeanour which set at defiance the very thought of there being the slightest approach to falsehood or artifice in his nature. The king felt that it was so himself, notwithstanding many prejudices on all the questions which could arise between the count and himself, but his line of conduct by this time had been fully determined, and he replied, "'As I caused you to be informed this morning, Monsieur de Mercey, my arrangements do not permit me to give you so much time as will be necessary for the hearing of all you have to say for several days. In the meanwhile, however, fear not that your cause will be in any degree prejudged, as we have already, by a courier, arrived this morning, received full intelligence of all that has lately taken place in Poitou, and of the movements of some of our misguided subjects of the pretended reformed religion." We have ordered accurate information to be obtained upon the spot by persons who cannot be considered as prejudiced, and we will give you audience as soon as such information has been fully collected. In the meantime, you will remain at the court and be treated here in every respect as a favoured and faithful servant, which will show you that no unjust prejudice has been created. Though it is not to be denied that the first effect of the tidings we received from Poitou was to excite considerable anger against you. However, you owe a good deal, in those respects, to Monsieur Pellisson, who bore witness to your having gallantly defended his life from a bad party of robbers, and to your having saved from the flames a commission under our hand, although that commission was afterwards unaccountably abstracted. I hope to hear, the king continued, of your frequenting much the society of Monsieur Pellisson, and our respected and revered friend, the Bishop of Meaux, by which you may doubtless derive great advantage and perhaps arrive at those happy results which would make it our duty, as well as our pleasure, to favour you in the very highest degree. The meaning of Louis was too evident to be mistaken, and as the Count de Mousseau had not the slightest intention of encouraging even a hope that he would abandon the creed of his ancestors, he merely bowed in reply, and the king passed on. The count was then about to retire immediately from the gardens, but Pellisson caught him by the sleeve as he passed, saying in a low voice, "'Come on, Monsieur de Mosset, come on after the king. Believe me, I really wish you well, and it is of much consequence that you should show not only your attachment to his majesty by presenting yourself constantly at the court,' but also that you are entering into none of the intrigues of those who are irritating him by opposition and cabals. You know Monsieur Bossuet, of course. Let us come on. I only know Monsieur Bossuet by reputation, replied the Count, bowing to the bishop who had paused also, and at the same time turning to follow the royal train. I only know him by reputation, as who, throughout France, nay, throughout Europe, does not. "'The compliment will pass for Catholic,' 
though it comes from a Protestant mouth, said one of two gentlemen, who had been obliged to pause also by the halt of the party before them. But neither Bossuet nor the Count took any notice, but walked on, entering easily into conversation with each other. The eloquent prelate, who was not less keen and dexterous than he was zealous and learned, accommodating himself easily to the tone of the young Count. Pelisson, ere they had gone far, was inclined to have drawn the conversation to religious subjects, and was a little anxious to prove to the Count de Mosseuil that, at the bottom, there was very little real difference between the Catholic and the Protestant faith, from which starting point he intended to argue, as was his common custom, that as there was so little difference, and as in all the points of difference that did exist the Catholics were in the right, it was a bounden duty for every Protestant to renounce his heretical doctrines and embrace the true religion. Bossuet, however, was much more politic, and resisted all Pelisson's efforts to introduce such topics by cutting across them immediately and turning the conversation to something less evidently applicable to the Count de Mosseuil. Something was said upon the subject of Jansenism, indeed, as they walked along, and Bossuet replied, smiling, "'Heaven forbid that those discussions should be renewed. I abhor controversy, and always avoid it, except when driven to it. I am anxious indeed, most anxious, that all men should see and renounce errors, and especially anxious, as I am in duty bound, when those errors are of such a nature as to affect their eternal salvation.' but very little good, I doubt, has ever been done by controversy, though certainly still less by persecution, and if we were to choose between those two means, controversy would of course be the best. Unfortunately, however, it seldom ends but as a step to the other. There was something so moderate and so mild in the language of the prelate that the young Count soon learned to take great pleasure in his discourse, and after these few brief words concerning religion, the Bishop of Meaux drew the conversation to arts and sciences, and the great improvements of every kind which had taken place in France under the government of Louis the Fourteenth. They were still speaking on this subject when the King turned at the end of the terrace, and with surprise saw the Count de Mosseuil in his train between Pelisson and Bossuet. A smile of what appeared to be dignified satisfaction came over the monarch's countenance, and as he passed he asked, "'What are you discussing so eagerly, Monsieur de Meaux? "'We are not discussing, sire,' replied the bishop, "'for we are all of one opinion. "'Monsieur de Mosseuil was saying that in all his knowledge of history, "'which we know is very great, "'he cannot find one monarch whose reign has produced so great a change in society "'as that of Louis the Great.' "'The king smiled graciously and passed on, "'but the same sarcastic personage, who followed close behind the party to which the Count had attached himself, added to Bossuet's speech, almost loud enough for the King to hear, "'Except Mohammed, except Mohammed, Monsieur de Meaux.' It was impossible either for the Bishop or the Count or Pelisson to repress a smile, but the only one of the party who turned to look was the Count, the others very well knowing the voice to be that of Villiers, whose strange method of paying court to Louis the Fourteenth was by abusing everything on which the monarch prided himself. He was slightly acquainted with the Count de Mosseuil, having met him more than once on service, and seeing him turn his head, he came up and joined them. "'You spoil that man, all of you,' he said, speaking of the king. 
all the world flatters him till he does not know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is beautiful and what is ugly. Now, as we stand here upon this terrace, he continued, and look down over those gardens, is there anything to be seen on the face of the earth more thoroughly and completely disgusting than they are? Is it possible for human ingenuity to devise anything so mathematically detestable? One would suppose that La Hire, or Cassini, or some of the other clockmakers, had been engaged with their villainous compasses in marking out all those rounds and triangles and squares, so that the whole park and gardens, when seen from my little room, which the king in his immense generosity gave me in the garret story of the palace, look exactly like a dusty leaf torn out of Euclid's elements, with all the problems demonstrated upon it. Then, Monsieur de Moisset, do pray look at those basins and statues. Here you have a set of black tadpoles croaking at an unfortunate woman in the midst, as black as themselves. There you have a striking representation of Neptune gone mad. Perhaps it was meant for a storm at sea. And certainly from the number of people death-sick all around, and pouring forth from their mouths into the basins, one might very easily conceive it to be so. There is not one better than another, and yet the king walks about amongst them all, and thinks it the finest thing that ever was seen upon the face of the earth, and has at this moment five and twenty thousand men working hard to render it, if possible, uglier than before. The Count de Mousseux smiled, and although he acknowledged that he loved the fair face of the country, unshaven and unornamented, better than all that art could do, yet he said that for the gardens of such a palace as that of Versailles, where solemn and reposing grandeur was required, and regular magnificence more than picturesque beauty, he did not see that better could have been done. Thus passed the conversation till the king, after having taken another turn, re-entered the building, and his courtiers quitted him at the foot of the staircase. The Count then inquired of Pelisson where he could best lodge in Versailles, and the abbe pointed out to him a handsome house, very near that in which the Bishop of Meaux had taken up his abode for the time. "'Do you intend to come speedily to Versailles?' demanded the bishop. "'As I understood the king,' replied the Count, "'it is his pleasure that I should do so.' and consequently I shall merely go back to Paris to make my arrangements, and then return hither with all speed. I propose to be back by seven or eight o'clock this evening, if this house is still to be had. For that I can answer, replied the bishop. The only disagreeable thing you will find here is a want of food, he added, laughing, for the palace swallows up all. But if you will honour me by supping with me to-night, Monsieur le Comte, perhaps Monsieur Pelisson will join us, and one or two others, and we may spend a calm and pleasant evening in talking over such things as chance or choice may select. We do so often in my poor abode, but indeed I forgot. Perhaps you may prefer going to the theatre at the palace, for this is one of the nights when a play is performed there. No, indeed, replied the Count. I hold myself not only flattered, but obliged by your invitation, Monsieur de Meaux, and I will not fail to be with you at any hour you appoint. The hour was accordingly named, and, taking his leave, the young Count de Mosseuil sought his horses and returned to Paris. His visit to Versailles, indeed, had not been so satisfactory as he could have wished, 
and while Jérôme Riquet was making all the preparations for his master's change of abode, the Count himself leaned his head upon his hand and revolved in deep thought all the bearings of his present situation. No one knew better than he did that appearances are but little to be trusted at any court, and as little as in any other at the court of Louis the Fourteenth. He knew that the next word from the king's mouth might be in order to conduct him to the Bastille, and that very slight proofs of guilt would be required to change his adherence to his religion, if not into a capital crime, at least into a pretext for dooming him to perpetual imprisonment. He saw also, though perhaps not to the full extent of the king's design, that Louis entertained some hopes of his abandoning his religion and he doubted not that various efforts would be employed to induce him to do so, efforts difficult to be parried, painful to him to be the object of, and which might, perhaps, afford matter for deep offence if they proved ineffectual. He saw, and he knew too, that it was decidedly the resolution of the king and of his advisers to put down altogether the Protestant religion in France, that there was no hope, that there was no chance of mitigating in any degree the unchangeable spirit of intolerance. All these considerations urged the young Count to pursue a plan which had suggested itself at first to his mind, rather as the effect of despair than of calculation. It was to go back no more to Versailles, to return post-haste to Poitou, to collect with all speed the principal Protestants who might be affected by any harsh measures of the court, to demand of Clémence de Marly the fulfilment of her promise to fly with him, and embarking with the rest at the nearest port, to seek safety and peace in another land. The more he thought over this design, the more he was inclined to adopt it, for although he evidently saw that tidings of what had taken place at the preaching in the desert had already reached the king's ears, and that the first effect was past, yet he could not rely by any means upon the sincerity of the demeanour assumed towards him, and believed that even though he, if his military services were required, might be spared from political considerations, yet the great majority of the Protestants might be visited with severe inflictions on account of the part they had taken in the transactions of that day. One consideration alone tended to make him pause ere he executed this purpose, which was that having undertaken a task he was bound to execute it, and not to shrink from it while it was half completed, and though anxious to do what he considered right in all things, he feared that by flying he might but be able to protect a few, while by remaining he might stand between many and destruction. In this world we ponder and consider and give time and care and anxiety and thought to meditation over different lines of conduct, while calm, imperturbable fate stands by till the appointed moment, and then, without inquiring the result, decides the matter for us. The Count had sent a servant immediately after his return from Versailles to the house of Marshal Schomberg, to inquire whether that officer were in Paris, and if so, at what hour he would be visible. The servant returned, bringing word that Marshal Schomberg had quitted the country, that his house and effects had been sold, and that it was generally supposed he never intended to return. This was an example of the prompt execution of a resolution, which might well have induced the Count de Mosseuil to follow it, especially as it showed Schomberg's opinion to be 
that the affairs of the Protestants in France were utterly irretrievable, and that the danger to those who remained was imminent. Thus was another weight cast into the scale, but even while he was rising from the table at which he sat, in order to give directions for preparing for a still longer journey than that which he had notified to his servants before, Jérôme Riquet entered the room and placed before him a note, written in a hand with which he was not at all acquainted. "'You have thought much of my conduct strange, Albert,' it began, and turning at once to the other page he saw the name of Clémence. "'You have thought much of my conduct strange, and now you will not think it still stranger, when I tell you that I have but two moments to write to you, and not even a moment to see you?' I looked forward to tomorrow with hope and expectation, and now I suddenly learn that we are to set off within an hour for Paris. The order has been received from the king. The duke will not make a moment's delay. For me to stay here alone is, of course, impossible, and I am obliged to leave Poitou without seeing you, without the possibility even of receiving an answer. Pray write to me immediately in Paris. Tell me that you forgive me for for an involuntary fault. Tell me that you forgive me for anything I may have done to pain you. I say so because your last look seemed to be reproachful. And yet, believe me, when I tell you, upon my honour, that I could not but act as I have acted. Oh, Albert, if I could but see you in Paris, I, who used to be so bold, I, who used to be so fearless, now feel as if I were going into a strange world where there is need of protection and guidance and direction. I feel as if I had given up all control over myself, and if you were near me, if you were in Paris, I should have greater confidence, I should have greater courage, I should have more power to act, to speak, even to think rightly, than I have at present. Come then, if it be possible, come then, if it be right, and if not, at all events write to me soon, Write to me immediately. May I? Yes, I may, for I feel it is true. Call myself your Clémence. The letter was dated on the very day that the Count himself had set off, and had evidently been sent over to the Chateau of Mousseuil shortly after his departure. Maître Riquet had contrived to linger in the room on one pretext or another, while his master read the note, and the Count, turning towards him, demanded eagerly how it had come, and who had brought it. "'Why, monsieur,' replied the man, "'the truth is, I always love to have a little information. In going through life I had found it like a snuff-box, which one should always carry. Even if one does not take snuff oneself, it is so useful for one's friends.' "'Come, come, sir, to the point,' said his master. "'How did this letter arrive? That is the question.' "'Just what I was going to tell you, my lord,' replied the man. "'I left behind me Pierre Martin to gather together a few stray things which I could not carry with me, and a few stray pieces of information which I could not learn myself, and to bring them after us to Paris with all speed. Old doublets, black silk stockings, bottles of essence, cases of razors, true information regarding all the reports in the county of Poitou.' and whatever letters might have arrived between our going and his coming. "'In the latter instance,' replied the Count, "'you have done wisely, and more thoughtfully than myself. "'I do believe, Riquet, as you once said of yourself, "'you never forget anything that is necessary.' 
"'You do me barely justice, sir,' replied the man, "'for I remember always a great deal more than is necessary. "'So seeing that the letter was in a lady's hand, "'I brought it to you, my lord, at once, "'without even waiting to look in at the end, "'which perhaps was imprudent, "'as very likely now I shall never be able to ascertain the contents.' "'You are certainly not without your share of impudence, Maître Jérôme,' replied his master. "'Which I suppose you would say is amongst your other good qualities. "'But now leave me, for I must think over this letter.' "'Riquet prepared to obey, but as he opened the door for his own exit, "'he drew two or three steps back, throwing it much wider "'and giving admission to the Prince de Marciac. "'His appearance did not by any means surprise the Count.' for although he had seen him that very morning at Versailles, he had obtained not a moment to speak with him, and, as old friends, it was natural that, if anything brought the prince to Paris, he should call at the Hôtel de Mosseuil to talk over all that had taken place since their last meeting at Poitiers. "'My dear Count,' he said, "'understanding from Monsieur de Meaux that you return to Versailles tonight, I have come to offer you a place down in my carriage, or to take a place in yours,' that we may have a long chat over the scenes at Poitiers and over the prospects of this good land of ours. Willingly, said the Count, I have no carriage with me, but I will willingly accompany you in yours. What time do you go? As soon as you will, replied the Prince. I am ready to set out directly. I have finished all that I had to do in Paris and return at once. The Count paused for a moment to calculate in his own mind whether it were possible that the Duc de Rouvray could reach Paris that night. Considering, however, the slow rate at which he must necessarily travel, accompanied by all his family, Albert of Mousset saw that one, if not two days more, must elapse before his arrival. "'Well,' he said, having by this time determined at all events to pause in the neighbourhood of the capital till after he had seen Clémence, "'well, as I have not dined, old friend,' I will go through that necessary ceremony against which my man the Riquet has doubtless prepared, and then I will be ready to accompany you. Nor have I dined either, replied the prince, so if you will give a knife and fork to one you justly call an old friend, I will dine with you, and we will send for the carriage in the meanwhile. There was something in the prince's tone and manner, difficult to describe or to explain, which struck the count as extraordinary. The calmest, the coolest, the most self-possessed man in France was a little embarrassed. But the Count made no remark, merely looking for a moment in his face, somewhat steadfastly indeed, and in such a manner that the other turned to the window, saying in a careless tone, "'It was under those trees, I think, that the Duke of Guise killed Coligny.' The Count made no reply, but called some of his attendants and bade them see what had been provided for dinner." In a few minutes it was announced as ready, and he sat down with his friend to table, doing the honours with perfect politeness and cheerfulness. Before the meal was concluded, it was announced that the prince's carriage and servants had arrived, and when all was ready, the Count de Mousseux proposed that they should depart, leaving his attendants to follow. Just as he had his foot upon the step of the carriage, however, the Count turned to his friend and said, "'You have forgot, my good friend, to tell the coachman "'whether he is to drive to the Bastille, or Vincennes, or to Versailles.' "'You mistake,' said the prince, following him into the carriage. "'To Versailles, of course. "'I will explain to you the whole matter as we go. 
"'Within ten minutes after you left Versailles this morning,' he continued, "'as soon as they were once fully on the way, "'I was sent for to the king about something referring to my post of Grand Veneur. "'I found Louvois with him in one of his furious and insolent moods, "'and the king bearing all with the utmost patience. "'It soon became apparent that the conversation referred to you.' Louvois contending that you should never have been suffered to quit Versailles till some affairs that have taken place in Poitou were fully examined, declaring that you had only gone to Paris in order to make your escape from the country more conveniently. The king asked me my opinion, and I laughed at the idea to Louvois's face. He replied that I did not know all, or half, indeed, for if I did, I should not feel nearly so certain. I said I knew you better, and to settle the matter at once, I added that, as I was going to Paris, I would undertake you came back with me in my carriage or I in yours. The king trusted me, as you see, and I thought it a great deal better to come in this manner as a friend than to let Louvois send you a lettre de cachet, which you might even find a more tiresome companion than the Prince de Marciac. Undoubtedly I should, replied the Count, and I thank you much for the interest you have taken in the affair, as well as for the candour of the confession. But now, my friend, since you have gone so far, go a little farther, and give me some insight, if you can, into what is taking place at the court, just at present, I mean in reference to myself, for my situation is, as you may suppose, not the most pleasant, and is one in which a map of the country may be serviceable to me. I see none of my old friends about the court at present except yourself, Seigneur Lai, I have not been able to find. And he would give you no information, even if you did find him, replied the prince. I can give you but very little, for I know but little. In the first place, however, let me tell you a great secret, that you are strongly suspected of being a Protestant. Indeed, replied the Count. I fear they have more than suspicion against me there. Confess it not, said his friend. Confess it not for just at present it would be much more safe to confess high treason. But in the next place, my dear Count, a report has gone abroad, quite false, I know, that you are desperately in love with this fair Clémence de Marly. And pray, demanded the Count, smiling, in what manner would that affect me at the court, even were it true? Why, now, to answer seriously, replied his friend, remember I speak only from the authority of my own imagination, I should say that you are very likely to obtain her with every sort of honour and distinction to boot, in spite of Ericor and the Chevalier d'Evron and all the rest, upon one small condition, which is that you take a morning's walk into the church of Saint-Laurent, or any other that may be more pleasant to you, stay about half an hour, read a set form, which means little or nothing, and go through some other ceremonies of the same kind." "'In fact,' said the Count, "'make my renunciation in form, you mean to say.' The prince nodded his head, and Albert of Mosset fell into thought, well knowing that his friend was himself ignorant of one of the most important considerations of the whole, namely the faith of Clémence de Marly herself. On that subject, of course, he did not choose to say anything, but after remaining in thought for a few moments he demanded— and pray, my good friend, what is to be the result if I do not choose to make this renunciation? Heaven only knows, replied the prince. There are at least six or seven different sorts of fate that may befall you. 
probably the choice will be left to yourself whether you will have your head struck off in a gentlemanly way in the court of the Bastille, or be broken on the wheel, though I believe that process they are keeping for the Huguenot priests now, ministers as you call them. If the king should be exceeding merciful, the castle of Pignerol, or the prison in the Isle Saint-Marguerite, may afford you a comfortable little solitary dwelling for the rest of your life. I don't think it likely that he should send you to the galleys, though I am told they are pretty full of military men now. But if I were you, I would choose the axe. It is soonest over. I think I should prefer a bullet, said the Count, but we shall see, my good friend, though I can't help thinking your anticipations are somewhat more sanguinary than necessary. I hear that Schomburg has taken his departure, and it must have been with the King's permission. Why should it not be the same in my case? I have served the King as well though perhaps not quite so long. "'But you are a born subject of France,' replied the other. "'Schomburg is not. "'And besides, Schomburg has given no offence "'except remaining faithful to his religion. "'You have been heading preaching in the open fields, they say, "'if not preaching yourself.' "'Certainly not the last,' replied the Count. "'Indeed,' said his friend, "'they have manufactured a story, then, "'of your having addressed the people before anyone else?' "'Good God!' exclaimed the Count. Is it possible that people can pervert one's actions in such a manner? I merely besought the people to be orderly and tranquil, and added a hope that they had come unarmed as I had come. It would seem that a number of you were armed, however, said the Prince, for some of the dragoons were killed, it would appear, and, on my word, you owe a good deal to Pelisson, for if Louvois had obtained his way this morning, as usual, your head would have been in no slight danger. The abbé stepped in, however, and said that he had seen much of you in Poitou, and that from all he had heard and seen, his majesty had not a more faithful or obedient subject in those parts. "'I am certainly very much obliged to him,' replied the Count, "'but he has strangely altered his tone, for at Poitiers he would fain have proved me guilty all sorts of acts that I never committed.' "'Perhaps he may have had cause to change,' replied the Prince de Marciac. It is known that he and Saint-Élie quarrelled violently before Pelisson's return. But at all events, your great security is in the fact that there are two factions in the party who are engaged in putting down your set. The one would do it by gentle means. Bribery, corruption, persuasion, and the soft stringence of exclusion from place, rank, and emolument. The other breathes nothing but fire and blood, the destruction of rebels to the royal will, and the most signal punishment for all who differ in opinion from themselves. This last party would fain persuade the king that the Huguenots are in arms, or ready to take arms, throughout France, and that nothing is to be done but to send down armies to subdue them. But then the others come in and say, It is no such thing, the people are all quiet, they are submitting with a good grace, and if you do not drive them to despair, they will gradually return, one by one, to the bosom of the Mother Church, rather than endure all sorts of discomfort and disgrace. Of this party are Pelisson, the good bishop, and many other influential people. But above all, Madame de Maintenon, whose power in everything but this is supreme. Had I not better see her, demanded the Count, and endeavour to interest her in our favour? She dare not for her life receive you, replied the Prince. What is religion or humanity or generosity? 
or anything else to her if it stand in the way of ambition. No, no, Morsay, the good lady may perhaps speak a kind word for you in secret, and when it can be put in the form of an insinuation, but she is no Madame de Montespan, who would have defended the innocent and thrust herself in the way to prevent injustice, even if the blow had fallen upon herself. She dared to say to the king things that no other mortal dared, and would say them too when her heart or her understanding was convinced. But Madame de Maintenon creeps towards the crown and dares not do a good action if it be a dangerous one. Do not attempt to see her, for she would certainly refuse, and if she thought that the very application had reached the king's ears, she would urge him to do something violent, merely to show him that she had nothing to do with you. She has had much to do with me and mine, replied the Count somewhat bitterly, for to my father she and her mother owed support when no one else would give it. She owed her bread to Madame de Montespan, replied the Prince, and yet ceased not her efforts till she had supplanted her. But, he added after a pause, she is not altogether bad either, and it is not improbable that if there be any scheme going on for converting you by milder means than the wheel, as I believe there is, she may be the deviser of it. She was in the room this morning when the business was taking place between the King, Louvois, and Pelisson. She said nothing, but sat working at a distance, the very counterpart of a piebald cat that sat dozing in the corner. But she heard all, and I remarked that when the affair was settled and other things began, she beckoned Pelisson to look at her embroidery, and spoke to him for some minutes in a low voice. Monsieur, may I advise you?' the prince continued, after a brief interval had taken place in the conversation. "'Listen to me, but one word. I know well that there is no chance of your changing your religion except upon conviction. Do not, however, enact the old Roman, or court too much the fate of martyrdom. But without taking any active step in the matter, let the whole plans of these good folks— as far as they affect yourself, go on unopposed. Let them, in short, still believe that it is not impossible to convert you. Listen to Pelisson, pay attention to Bossuet, watch the progress of events. Be converted if you can, and if not, you, at all events, will gain opportunities of retiring from the country with far greater ease and safety than at present, if you should be driven to such a step at last." In the meantime, this affair of the preaching will have blown over, and they will not dare to revive it against you if they let it slumber for some time. Think of it, Mosay. Think of it. I will, replied the Count, and thank you sincerely, and indeed will do all that may be done with honour, not to offend the king or endanger myself. And thus the conversation ended on that subject, the prince having said already far more than might have been expected from a courtier of Louis the Fourteenth. End of chapter sixteen.